Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is Dr. Bridget Scott and the focus of today's podcast is the latest advancements in ovarian cancer care featured at ESMO 2022. This podcast has been sponsored by GSK. Joining me today are two experts in the field, Professor Gilles Freyer and Dr. Domenica Lorusso, who are going to offer their perspectives on the most important research, outcomes and advancements in the management of patients with ovarian cancer presented at the ESMO Congress in September 2022 in Paris, France. Professor Gilles Freyer is medical oncologist, Lyon University Hospital, France. He is past president of the cooperative group Gineco. Dr. Domenica LaRusso is Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology at Catholic University of Rome, Italy, and is responsible for clinical research development at Fondazione Policlinico Universitario Gemelli, IRCCS. She is an active member of the Multicenter Italian Trial in Ovarian Cancer Group. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of GSK or EMJ. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Gilles Freya and Dr. Domenica LaRusso. On to the first question. What are the most significant updates to guidelines for first-line maintenance treatment in ovarian cancer presented at ESMO 2022? Domenica, would you like to start us off? Oh, yes, thank you. And thank you for inviting me. It was a very interesting uh, ESMO for gynecological cancer and for the first time after 20 years, we have the results of a phase three randomized trial in first line of ovarian cancer reporting overall survival benefit in stage three, four patient regardless BRCA mutation. This was the results of the Paula one trial, which was a randomized phase three trial comparing Olaparib bevacizumab versus bevacizumab alone in high-grade serious stage 3-4 ovarian cancer. The trial has already reported PFS benefit for patients with homologous recombination deficiency, but this year we have the final overall survival results and a significant increase, 17% more patients alive at five years were reported in the trial. This is an amazing result. We never saw overall survival benefit in the first-line setting in ovarian cancer, so this is, uh, this is amazing. But also we have a confirmation, the long-term results in a solo one trial of Olaparib at seven year follow-up in BRCA mute patient where a significant percentage of patients is still alive. 70% of them are still alive if they receive two years maintenance with Olaparib after chemotherapy. This is very, very amazing results suggesting that possibly there are some patients that we can consider cured in that setting for the first time. Uh, the guidelines uh, uh, actually have uh, implemented these results in clinical practice and actually all the patients with BRCA mute and HRD positive tumor should receive PARP inhibitor maintenance treatment if they achieve a complete or partial response to platinum-based first-line chemotherapy. And Gilles, do you have anything to add about the, the guidelines? 
Uh, yes, I, I just wanted to uh, to say that I'm totally uh, uh, in, I totally agree uh, with uh, Domenica. Uh, but uh, before the, the pop inhibitor era, uh, uh, the progression-free survival of patients with advanced stage of ovarian cancer, uh, and, and certainly uh, mainly in patients without BRCA mutation, was less less than five percent. Uh, and so almost nobody could be cured. And now uh, with these uh, new strategies, uh, it's uh, almost certain that we can cure uh, a significant proportion of patients. And moreover, um, I would add that uh, regarding toxicity of the combination of the vasizumab uh, and olaparib, there, there was no new safety signal uh, since, uh, for instance, uh, the rate of uh, myelodysplastic syndrome and acute myeloid uh, uh, leukemia was uh, less than 2% um, uh, for the combination of olaparib and bevacizumab. It was around 2% uh, with the bevacizumab alone. So we can be relatively reassured regarding the, the tolerance of the combination. Okay, so incredibly positive and important results um, in terms of overall survival um, presented at ESMO. So um, in terms of how are, how are these results reflected in the guidelines and how are they impacting on clinical practice and what does the future look like for this, um, this treatment? Well, the guidelines were received these results, and actually what is evident is that all BRCA mute patients and HRD-positive patients should receive a PARP inhibitor in the maintenance setting, either alone or in combination to bevacizumab according to clinical characteristic of the patient or tumor characteristic. For HRP patients, patients without homologous recombination deficiency, the guidelines or actually suggest the possibility to have a maintenance, but with bevacizumab alone or with PARP inhibitor alone. We have so many possibilities for our patient now. And Gilles, do you have any comments? Yes, the, 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 the main issue regarding OSDOR results is that we still don't know what is the best maintenance treatment uh, after chemotherapy. Uh, certainly, uh, miraparib alone uh, or recaparib alone could be a good option. Certainly in patients with BRCA mutation or uh, who are, uh, whose tumor are HRD. But in my opinion, there is still an uncertainty regarding the efficacy of those drugs in HRP patients where bevacizumab could be also could also be considered uh, as a good option. And uh, we don't know if the POP inhibitor has to be used alone or if it should be combined to uh, bevacizumab, since in the Paula trial, uh, the reference arm was bevacizumab alone and not a POP inhibitor alone. That's why we need additional data, which perhaps will come from two uh, big European trials, uh, the Nirvana trial, uh, only in patients with complete cytoreduction, a combination of niraparib alone versus niraparib plus bevacizumab, and also a German trial, uh, which is a, biggest, uh, a bigger trial 
uh, including not only patients with complete surgery, but also the other patients and stage four patients. And I hope we'll have the answer in the coming years. So at last, we've got lots of treatment options for these patients, but the research is continuing and it, it sounds like the results are awaited with interest. Okay, um, just touching on the, the Aerial 4 study with the Rucaparib, um, it was suggested that the um, overall survival was confounded by the high rate of crossover from chemotherapy to, to Rucaparib. What are your comments on this? Sure. Uh, Rucaparib, uh, the higher four data was a randomized uh, phase three trial comparing uh, Rucaparib single agent versus uh, uh, chemotherapy, both platinum and non-platinum chemotherapy in BRCA mute patient uh, uh, in the setting of active treatment, not in the setting of maintenance treatment. So we are talking about a completely different population. The trial met its primary endpoint as a significant amelioration in progression-free survival was reported for the Rucaparib arm with respect to chemotherapy, both platinum and non-platinum. This year, we received the final overall survival advantage. In the overall population, there was a suggestion, there was not a significant benefit in overall survival, but there was still a suggestion about a possible detrimental effect of rucaparib with respect to chemotherapy in this population. So I have honestly to say that the trial was not powered to detect overall survival advantage and a huge number of patients experienced a crossover. I mean patients who were progressing during chemotherapy after progression receive PARP inhibitor, and this may be absolutely confounding in terms of overall survival results. Moreover, there was a huge number of patients that did not receive any kind of subsequent treatment. So these patients were not treated at all, neither with chemo or with other PARPs. So, um, I think it's very difficult uh, to draw definitive conclusion about the Ariel 4 data because of these two great motivations. And uh, unfortunately, after the presentation of this data, the indication of Rucaparib as a single agent. Again, I want to underline, we are talking about Rucaparib used in the setting of active disease and not in the setting of maintenance. Uh, regardless, uh, after the presentation of this data, this indication was removed and withdrawn. Okay, onto the onto the PRIMA study. Uh, updated long-term efficacy data from this study presented at ESMO showed that clinically significant improvement in PFS with niraparib was maintained at a median of 3.5 years follow-up, irrespective of HRD status. How important is this finding, and is the improvement in progression-free survival likely to translate to an improvement in overall survival, Domenica? Oh, for sure, we hope so. Uh, the PRIMA trial was a randomized phase three trial comparing uh, three years of maintenance niraparib versus placebo in high-grade serious ovarian cancer, uh, stage three and four, 
achieving a complete or partial response uh, to platinum in the first line setting. So the primary presentation, the readout of the primary results reported a significant benefit in terms of PFS in all the three populations, BRCA mute, HRD, BRCA wild type, but also HRP. For sure, the magnitude of the benefit is different in the three population with BRCA mute patient experiencing the greater benefit than HRD, BRCA wild type, intermediate benefit, and then HRP, where the benefit is smaller but still significantly uh, present. This year, we received the follow-up update after 3.5 years of follow-up and a significant proportion of patients in, in all the ovarian cancer population was still free of disease when receiving niraparib. Also, at a longer follow-up, the magnitude of benefit was different. Again, BRCA mute patient, the higher benefit, BRCA wild type HRD, an intermediate benefit, but still the HRP patient continue to have an advantage. As uh, Gilles say, the, the, the curves of the HRP population at a longer follow-up tend to overlap, so probably the benefit in this population is less pronounced, and this is the reason why Jill say probably bevacizumab as a still a rule in the maintenance setting of this population. But this is true, but also I want to underline that PARP inhibitor represents a good alternative in HRP patients who cannot receive bevacizumab for whatever reason, clinical contraindication, surgical contraindication, or the clinician prefer to maintain BEV in second line and to use PARP in first line. So um, just about uh, uh, Ariel 4, um, as Dominica said, there is probably an issue regarding the efficacy of PARP inhibitors as an, a, a treatment of an, an active disease rather than in maintenance. It seems that those drugs are really adapted to the maintenance treatment. And we also have some uh, preclinical data showing that uh, when you use uh, the PARP inhibitor as a treatment, then the efficacy of a subsequent chemotherapy might be reduced. Uh, that's why probably the decision of uh, reconsidering uh, the indication of this, those treatment in, uh, in, uh, uh, on, on active disease, on treatment of active disease, is certainly a wise decision. Uh, I think it's better to do chemo first and then pop inhibitor as a maintenance treatment. That's so interesting. Thank you. Okay, I'll give you the first shot at the next question then, Gilles, if that's, uh, if that's okay with you. Okay. Um, how is current research addressing the issue of chemotherapy resistance? Regarding chemo resistance, we have uh, uh, several theoretical uh, options. Um, uh, we have uh, we have new drugs that uh, certainly can be uh, interesting in this setting. Some results have been uh, reported with uh, mirvetuximab, so aftercin. Uh, we also have uh, data with epifiltamab, uh, rilzodotin, and uh, at this ESMO, I also saw some data regarding uh, ubamatamab, uh, which is a B-specific 
uh, antibody uh, which uh, targets uh, MUC16 and also CD3 on T lymphocytes. So, you know, it's a, it's a kind of uh, immunotherapy and uh, uh, initial results were uh, relatively uh, uh, interesting. Uh, of course, those are preliminary results, but uh, in uh, patients uh, who were uh, uh, heavily pretreated, we, they, they obtain uh, in an open trial uh, uh, median duration of response of around uh, 12 months and uh, around 45% uh, of uh, the patients uh, responded to this uh, treatment. So it's an option uh, among several other options. And uh, also uh, we have uh, uh, this uh, particular option with the uh, relacorilant. And I think that uh, perhaps Dominica will, uh, will have to comment uh, with this drug, she knows perfectly well. Oh, yes. Thank you, Jill. It's a very interesting drug, in my opinion, Relacorilant. It is a drug um, antagonizing uh, the receptor for cortisol. Uh, we know that when this receptor is activated, it prompts toward a mesenchymal epithelial mesenchymal transition. So it is responsible of a more, an higher aggressiveness of tumor, but also it is involved in chemoresistance. And relacorilant is an, anti, is an antagonizing of this receptor. And preclinical data suggests that when combined with nabopa Paclitaxel, it's enhanced the efficacy of nabopaclitaxel. Nabopaclitaxel is not a drug that we use usually in ovarian cancer, but it was necessary to conjugate with the relacorilant because it is a drug that does not require cortisol premedication. Because if you have a cortisol premedication, for sure you cannot use a drug in combination with another drug that insist on the cortisol receptor. In the relacorilant trial presented during HESMO last year and during ASCO this year and during HESMO also this year, the results of a randomized phase two trial with the relacorilant in combination with the nabopaclitaxel versus nabopaclitaxel alone in a population of platinum resistant and refractory ovarian cancer were presented. And we have a signals of efficacy because a significant increase in progression-free survival and also duration of response was reported in the relacorilant arm with the trend towards also an increase in overall survival. So these data are really encouraging, but for sure it is a randomized phase two trial that need to be validated in a larger randomized phase three trial. And now this trial is ready to start. So fantastic progress in this area, a phase three, phase three trial on its way for relacorilant? Yes, sure. Wonderful. Okay, um, Gilles, which preclinical or early phase clinical studies in ovarian cancer presented at ESMO 2022 did you consider to be the most interesting or significant? I've already mentioned the uh, Ubamatamab study. Um, I don't know if you want me to, to comment again about this study. But uh, I think, uh, OK, it's, it's enough with this drug. Um, we also had uh, the, 
uh, I don't know if we can consider it's an early phase, but uh, we, we had the updated result of uh, the Mediola study, uh, which uh, combined uh, um, olaparib and, uh, and dovalumab and also olaparib, bevacizumab and dovalumab. Uh, it's not a randomized study, so those data um, uh, are only hypothesis generating, but uh, uh, it seems that the combination, we, we know that the combination of olaparib and dovalumab is feasible, and it's also feasible when you add the vasizumab. And uh, in, uh, in this uh, study, uh, the uh, overall survival at two years uh, in, uh, in uh, patients previously treated by, uh, by chemotherapy was uh, around 65%. So uh, it's probably an interesting, uh, an interesting combination. However, uh, we know now that uh, Olaparib and also immunotherapy has moved to the first line in, in uh, some randomized trials. So I, I, I don't know what could be the future of this combination. Domenica, which preclinical and early phase clinical studies have uh, caught your interest? Oh, personally, I find very interesting the results of the Peacock trial, which was a trial evaluating immunotherapy single agent in the clear cell tumor of the ovary, endometrial, and cervical cancer. There was only one patient, to be honest, with cervical cancer. It is interesting because, you know, we have a lot a lot of negative results with immunotherapy in ovarian cancer in whichever setting we try to use it in first line in second line alone in combination with antiangiogenic agent also this year we have another negative trial exploring immunotherapy with antiangiogenic agent in second line setting so all negative trial with uh, immunotherapy in ovarian cancer, with one exception, the clear cell tumor. It seems that clear cell tumor responds very, very well to immune therapy because a part of them present microsatellite instability, but also because they have some signature very similar to the signature of renal cancer that seems to be um, to make them able to respond to immunotherapy. And this year we have presented the results of the Peacock trial that confirm uh, good signals of efficacy of immunotherapy in a population selected uh, for clear cell. There were 85% of patients were ovarian cancer, second and third line, platinum resistant. Um, the remaining were mostly represented by clear cell uterine cancer, only one patient with cervical cancer, but there were good signals of efficacy. Uh, immunotherapy represents a missed opportunity for us uh, because we probably uh, we, we did not properly select the patient who could respond. But the clear cell seems to be the patient that can respond. Okay, so even though um, the immunotherapy doesn't seem to be making much impact in ovarian cancer, in the clear cell carcinoma, that's where it potentially is very interesting. Absolutely, yes. Fantastic. Okay, on to um, HRD testing. What is the current consensus on HRD testing in ovarian cancer? And do you think that wider genetic testing is needed to optimize treatment and disease prevention? Gilles? Yes, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, absolutely clear that uh, genetic testing now for BRCA mutation 
uh, is necessary for uh, all patients with a high-grade ovarian cancer, uh, not only for, uh, I would say, familial reasons. It's really important to assess the risk in the members of the family, but also to uh, have the best treatment available. Uh, but as Dominica previously said, uh, it's only one part of, uh, of, uh, of the question. The other part is uh, what's the HRD status? And uh, we know that it, it's important to distinguish patients having HRD rather than HRP status in order to adapt the treatment. Um, but uh, unfortunately, uh, um, first I would say that uh, the molecular signature uh, currently available are not so much discriminant. Uh, and moreover, uh, they are, we know that they are expensive and it's certain that only a very small proportion of patients throughout the world can access to this kind of signature. It's a challenge we have to face with uh, in the coming years, perhaps with the cheaper signatures or other uh, ways of uh, assessing uh, the HRD uh, uh, status for, uh, for the patients. And um, then I would say that probably other genes uh, could now be considered or other uh, cellular pathways uh, should be included in a wider uh, genetic testing. And that's the purpose of uh, the protocol we have uh, within the Gineco group, which is called GREAT, um, where the patients uh, have uh, uh, not only HRD and BRCA, but other genes that uh, can be involved uh, in the overall risk, but also in the response to uh, treatment. And as an example, uh, we can mention that uh, from a purely genomic point of view, uh, in some patients as a mechanism of resistance uh, to, uh, to chemotherapy and, and also perhaps to PARP inhibitors, you can have some activations of the PIF3 kinase pathway. And uh, there, there is a, a currently a protocol assessing the combination of laparid and alpelisic, for instance. That's why we, of course, we have to, uh, to uh, we, we need a wider strategy to adapt the, the, the treatment. Domenica, what are your thoughts? I, I fully agree with Gilles. We cannot treat ovarian cancer patient actually without clear information of the molecular profiling of our patient. We need to know if this patient is BRCA mute, this has a prognostic and predictive value, but also a great value for family implication. But actually, we cannot afford the treatment of our patient if we do not know if they present or not homologous recombination deficiency. I fully agree with Jill. We need better tests. Um, I want to underline that in the registrative trial, in up to 18% of patients, one eight percent of them, the test was inconclusive. So we need a better test to identify our patient cheaper test to identify this patient and we need to implement academic tests. There are at least two or three academic tests validated on the population of Parola 1, so the research is improving, but uh, we cannot renounce to this information actually. So the HRD testing clearly is incredibly important for prognosis, for correct treatment, getting the patient on the correct treatment pathway as early as possible. 
Um, but as you've both mentioned, clearly the, the methods aren't ideal at the moment. We need, we need more accurate methods. We need cheaper testing um, to enable it to be a universal um, approach. But probably it's difficult to find a universal approach, but it could be nice to have at least the valid, different but all validated tests in comparison to the myriad my choice, which is the test that has been used in the registrative trial. And regarding this, um, I want to say that last year we published a consensus in a European consensus uh, um, regarding HRD tests, and we clearly report that all ovarian cancer patients should receive this test at diagnosis. Fantastic, yes. Okay, what are the latest opinions on circulating tumour DNA as a potential biomarker for disease progression in patients with ovarian cancer? Gilles, would you like to tackle that one? Yes. Uh... Charlotte, I would say that it's, it's certainly um, uh, a promising uh, option, but on, only, in my opinion, uh, in the research setting uh, currently. Um, there are many tumor models, uh, in, uh, including ovarian cancer, in which we can observe a, a, a decline uh, in uh, circulating uh, DNA, DNA as uh, a prognostic factor and also an indicator of response to, uh, to treatment. Um, and perhaps it could be regarded as uh, um, a, a, a data reflecting uh, the tumor mass, the overall tumor mass uh, in, in the maintenance setting. I think it's uh, fr from this point of view, it could be regarded as a, as a promising option, but uh, it certainly has to be uh, validated. Uh, I, uh, what I'm saying about validation is uh, uh, we, we need to show that using circulating DNA uh, is better for the patients in terms of PFS or, or overall survival rather than uh, having the, the standard uh, attitude. I fully agree with you, Jill. Um, the, the, the problem is what is the clinical impact of the early detection of recurrence. If we will be able to demonstrate that the early detection of recurrence through the evaluation of circulating tumor cell or circulating tumor DNA is able, so the anticipation of diagnosis and the anticipation of treatment is able to increase progression-free and overall survival, Okay, this is promising, but actually we do not have this information, but I think it's an interesting field of clinical research. Yes, and we also can, perhaps we can remember that several years ago with the CA125, we had the Rustin study uh, showing that it's certainly interesting to have the information, but it doesn't change anything to start the treatment uh, based on uh, CA125 increase rather than clinical symptoms or radiological symptoms. Uh, but we don't, perhaps with the new treatments we have, and with the really yeah. very powerful treatment we have now, uh, perhaps it could be better to diagnose a relapse uh, earlier than, than we did before. We don't know. And DNA is, is also a marker, but CA125 is also a good biomarker. 
So am I right in thinking that currently um, information about circulating tumour DNA is a sort of a, an academic exercise and we are, we are yet to see whether knowing that information is going to impact on the, on the patient's care? Yes, it is. Actually, this is the situation. I, I was thinking while Jill was speaking about a, a possible interesting use of circulating tumour DNA, which is the anticipation of PARP resistance, because actually what we do not want is that our patient became resistant to PARP, because resistant to PARP overlap in such a way with resistant to further subsequent chemotherapy. So if we could be able to anticipate what patients are moving toward PARP resistance, Probably that can be an interesting use of circulating tumor DNA. But again, it's, it's a matter of clinical research, not clinical practice. And to my knowledge, there is no study in uh, ovarian cancer uh, based on uh, circulating DNA to, uh, uh, to take uh, a decision. But in breast cancer, we have a study with uh, Niraparib, which is called ZEST. Uh, and which is based on uh, increasing circulating DNA after initial treatment. And uh, when you have this increase, uh, there is a randomization between uh, uh, neuroparide and, uh, and follow-up. Uh, and I think, I think it's, a, it's a very, very interesting, uh, interesting study, uh, which is uh, conducted for in patients with mutation, but also in triple negative breast cancer patients. That's, that's an example of study where uh, the biomarker will have a, a therapeutic consequence. So we, we're at sort of the early stage with ovarian cancer, understanding the importance of, of knowing ctDNA levels. But um, it sounds like we could learn from, from other specialities, for example, breast cancer research, Sheil? Sure. Uh, it, it's, it, it's an example, among others, uh, of what we can do, but uh, we, uh, we have more patients in breast cancer with uh, early stage tumor, unfortunately, rather than in ovarian cancer. But it could be, uh, it, uh, we have around perhaps 20% uh, of patients with early phase uh, in ovarian cancer. And uh, perhaps those patients could be followed by using circulating DNA. Why not? Why not? Uh, uh, why not? Why can't we imagine to uh, such, such a protocol in ovarian cancer? I don't know, perhaps. Wonderful. Okay. Um, what is your view on individualizing treatment for ovarian cancer using biomarkers and available therapies? Domenica? Oh, this is what we want to <laughs> for our patient in the future. This is what the medical oncology in general is, uh, is trying to, to, to address. So, we are in the era of individualized therapy and personalized therapy. Um, molecular biomarker is, is not the only way to personalize therapy. Since several years, we use different schedule of chemotherapy according to the clinical characteristic of the patient we are treating. But now the uh, molecular characteristic represents a step forward. And the, the knowledge of BRCA mutation, HRD, homologous recombination deficiency, but uh, think also about uh, hormone receptor for low-grade serious tumor. Think about MSI for clear cell. I think more and more in the future we will move 
toward this kind of molecular characterization and matching treatment. Yes, ab absolutely. Uh, there are uh, uh, currently uh, um, some basket trials uh, in, in patients who uh, have been pretreated with uh, bevacizumab, chemotherapy, PARP inhibitor, and based on the molecular characteristic of the tumor, uh, then the, the patients are uh, given uh, uh, some different options of uh, targeted treatments. Um, it's it, perhaps it, it's this, the next step after uh, PARP inhibitors and, and bevacizumab. But um, I wanted, however, I wanted to mention that uh, despite the fact that we would like to personalize the treatment, our best treatments are not uh, individualized. Uh, they are based on uh, general mechanisms such as uh, anti such as angiogenesis or uh, or uh, uh, DNA recombination deficiency, and those mechanisms are uh, you know universal mechanisms. Uh, and uh, and it's we we have uh, now we have a better efficacy. Uh, by using all those uh, new drugs, but uh, um, uh, therapeutic individualization still remains an unmet need in ovarian cancer. There have been a lot of positive results coming out of the ESVO conference last year, and uh, it's really interesting to hear about the, the overall survival data and also the, the up-and-coming sort of preclinical, clinic, early clinical research. So, um, what do you think the future looks like for the management of patients with ovarian cancer and which advancements would you like to see? Gilles? Uh, there are perhaps several advancements we, uh, we can expect. Uh, the, the first one, in my opinion, is surgery uh, because we still don't know what's the best option between initial uh, surgery, you know, maximal surgical effort uh, at, in first line followed by chemotherapy and maintenance treatment or neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy and then in trouble debulking surgery. And uh, we have a German trial, which is a trust trial, I think, which uh, will be very important uh, because, um, you know, in, in, in my country, for instance, uh, we, we now we can observe that around 70% of patients with advanced stage will receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, I'm, I'm absolutely not satisfied with this uh, evolution, and I, I'm afraid that some patients with, will lose a uh, chance uh, of being cured with this, uh, this attitude. And I, I think it, it, it will be really important to know if uh, initial surgery is the best option or if we can do neoadjuvant chemotherapy safely, and I'm not sure. I'm really interested in those results. The, the second point is immunotherapy. Um, uh, the results of uh, immunotherapy uh, in ovarian cancer are extremely disappointing. There is no positive randomized trial. And at ESMO, at the, the last ESMO meeting, we had the Atalant trial, which, was, uh, which is a randomized trial in patients with platinum-sensitive disease. And there was absolutely no efficacy of uh, immunotherapy added to, uh, to chemo and, bev and bevacizumab. And I'm waiting uh, for the results of all the randomized trials that, have, that are currently uh, ongoing uh, in, the, in this setting. And, but I'm not sure that the results will be, will be positive. 
And then uh, our, our challenge uh, is to face with uh, resistance uh, to pop inhibitors. What can we do uh, to avoid resistance uh, in the maintenance setting first and to cure more and more patients? And then what can we do uh, once the patient has relapsed uh, and, is and has become resistant to pop inhibitors? And it's a new field and very important field of research. Domenica, your thoughts for the future? I fully agree. I fully agree with each point that Jill uh, reported. I just want to add that uh, my dream is that uh, we identify a screening for this tumor, an effective screening, because we, we unfortunately, we still continue to diagnose this tumor in stage three and four. And this, this late diagnosis greatly impact on our possibility to cure the patient. So if we could be able circulating tumor DNA, more effective strategies of screening, if could be able to anticipate the diagnosis, we would be able to cure and save much more lives. And that concludes today's podcast. Thank you to Professor Gilles Freire and Dr. Domenica LaRusso for joining us today and sharing their insights on the latest advancements in ovarian cancer care featured at ESMO 2022 with our audience. Remember to visit our archives for plenty of great podcasts covering many health-related topics. For now, stay safe and stay well, and I hope to have you back again on the EMJ podcast very soon. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now. Bye.